This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, truth seekers, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. This is episode 198, entitled First Cross-Examination Reactions in the Recent Old Testament Debate. In this week's episode, we will listen to the first cross-examination round from my recent debate with Kelly Powers on the topic of whether the Old Testament teaches Unitarianism, which is the doctrine that states that the true God is one person, the Father alone. There are actually two rounds of cross-examination in this debate, lasting a total of 40 minutes. So this episode will focus on the first round. I begin by asking questions for 10 minutes to Mr. Powers, and then he gets 10 minutes to ask me questions. The following episode, we'll hear the second round of cross-examination. Now, I'm going to begin this week's episode with a replay of the first cross-examination from the debate in its entirety. So you can see exactly what it sounded like. You can see the way that people answer questions. You can see the timing of things. Afterwards, I'm going to come back in and I'm going to talk about the questions that I asked, talk about the answers that I received, and give my reactions to those answers and assess the strength of his position. Of course, his position argues that the Old Testament does not teach Unitarianism. You can decide for yourself whether you think his answers to my questions are very persuasive. Of course, if you want to watch the entire debate in its full video action, you can check out the link in the description where I'll have the link to the YouTube. You can watch that at your own leisure. So without further ado, let's cut to the recording of the first cross-examination for you to enjoy. I appreciate your response, by the way. So thanks thanks for all those words. It, it helps to clarify some things. I got a couple of questions here. Um, is the cardinal number three in Hebrew, it's the word shalosh, is that associated with God in any passage of the Old Testament that you're aware of? The number three? Yes, the cardinal number three. Uh, no, because that's not that three is, is generally always three, where one is can be used in reference to singular and plural throughout both Old and New Testament. So that's a different word. Okay, uh, it, but it's yeah, you are correct. It is a, it is a different word. Okay, um, is is there any passage in the Old Testament that defines God as quote Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, in those terms, no, because that's New Testament revelation, like I mentioned before. Like, if we were just to look exclusively at the Old Testament, me and you would be going to bat together to try to affirm the Jesus being the Messiah from whom the Jewish people reject, at least as a whole, Judaism. So when you're looking exclusively at the Old Testament through that lens alone, that can be dangerous. And I'm not saying that directly to you, but if you're looking for explicit language, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like that, no. But I could understand through that lens of looking through the Old Testament through certain scriptures that are referenced from the apostles that point back to the Old Testament, bring light to that. 
I could do that. But if you're just doing that, um, that would be hard pressed and you'd be hard pressed to find that with a lot of things we probably would have in common. Okay. Um, were you aware um, that God is described with over 20,000 singular references in the Old Testament before I mentioned that? Uh, that exact number, I knew it was a big number, 10,000 plus, but the 20,000, um, unless you counted them all, uh, I'll go by your word on it. But no, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like just, just briefly, um, why don't you find over 20,000 singular references compelling? That seems like a lot. Oh, I, I, I don't discredit it. In fact, I find it very good as well. But I mean, you of all people with your studies, you know, we may have differences, but you know, there's a big thing called context. And so when we're looking at scriptures, we don't isolate them. We don't isolate them. We look at them as a package. We look at the verses before and after. If you notice when I went to Genesis 1, I also referenced Genesis 5. I wanted to be in context to what I was sharing. Right. So, yeah, well, I, I, I don't think you're you, you wouldn't suggest that I'm taking 20,000 references out of context, would you? Well, to be blunt, I think just like Jehovah's Witnesses or Oneness people or other people, they're they're reading it through a certain lens, just how I would be to a certain certain point of view from where I'm coming from. The the way that which we want to do it, like I mentioned in my opening, how many references would we need in the New Testament to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for it to be true? Would two be enough? Would five be enough? Well, I don't. Would we need respectfully. 000? I don't think you can ask me questions in my question part. Real quick though is is if there's at least enough data that demonstrates and points that, that should also have balance on both sides. We shouldn't just shove one over here and say, no, that's not true. We've got to see both sides of the coin. Okay. Um, you have mentioned a couple of times that the Old Testament defines God as both one and as a unity. Um, do, do you think that there are some passages that indicate that God is one person? I don't know of any direct reference that said that. So if you have one, you could point me to and you could say, Kelly, does this verse teach God is one person? And let's go look at it. Okay. Well, in many times you have, uh, you've talked about the scriptures or you've uh, read some passages um, that describe God with singular pronouns. Um, I, me, my, myself. Um, how many persons does a singular pronoun refer to? Oh, in all those contexts, that would be in, in, in the context of what you said would be one. But there could also okay. be other sentences where it could be used as a unity. So, again, that's why they work together. Okay, well, well how, how can a singular pronoun like I, first person singular, how can that refer to more than one person? Well, in that particular context, I would agree with what you said. But if that was exclusive by itself, I'll give you an example. We both kind of already hinted the New Testament. Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, the Father speaking speaks of the Old Testament pointing to the Son, which in Psalm 102, verse 24 and 25, says the Lord Yahweh is the one who made all things. And the Old yeah, Testament... Since this is a debate on four, the Old Testament, I'd like to keep our focus on the, on the Old Creator, Testament. Job 33, verse 4. Psalm 104, verse 30, talks about the Holy Spirit being involved in okay. creation. Isaiah 64, 8, talks about the Father. So each of those three are pointed to. So either I have to start chopping up the Bible to fit my theology... Or I also see it as a package. Do you think that uh, the doctrine that some people hold, which is called the eternal generation of the Son, is that something that's taught in the Old Testament? No, that was revealed through the New Testament. Okay, okay. All right. <clears throat> um, I'm actually 
I've listened very, very carefully. Um, I'd like to know, um, let, let's take the most common name for God, which is Yahweh, about 6,800 plus times. Um, is Yahweh a reference to the triune God or is Yahweh a reference to the Father alone? Uh, well, in, you know, just speaking in general, each, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been given that identification in the scripture. So uh, Yahweh, which we first, I think, really understand that meaning goes back to Exodus 3, I think, with, with um, Moses, if I remember correctly, where that's really defined what the um, Yahweh is being referenced to, the eternal one. Um, but I could see different scriptures talk all three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, being identified with that title. So I don't think it's, it's, it's not exclusive just to one personage. If it was, then that would be abundantly clear. And we'd have 20,000 references of that in the Old Testament stating that. So, but, but Yahweh is not a title. Yahweh is a personal name. Uh, and so you're saying that uh, whenever Yahweh shows up in the Old Testament, it could, depending on the context, refer to the Father, or it could refer to the Son, or it recur could refer to the Holy Spirit. Like it just it just changes. You just sound like a Trinitarian there. Yes. Okay. Um, so so why is it that none of the Hebrew lexicons say what you just said about the definition of Yahweh? Brown Driver and Briggs, Halot, the Klein's Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, none of them define uh, Yahweh as the triune God. Well, because that word of itself doesn't define that. I mean, um, same thing with Elohim, Adonai. Um, those words of themselves are titles or names. So when we're looking at Scripture as a whole, um, we see the Father reference with that. We see the Son reference with that. We see the Holy Spirit reference with that. So as complete package to speaking in general that's how i would do exegetical observation and see how that works if i only believed exclusively in, in, in that then i would have to reject the new testament because the new testament speaks of these things pointing back to the old testament there are a lot of allusion um, alluding to scriptures in the old testament of this some kind of unity if we didn't have the new testament i don't want to be too long i'm so sorry i am trying to be respectful um, but if we didn't have the New Testament, we would be kind of scratching our head probably a lot more and a lot of things. But because of Jesus Christ and he came to reveal the Father, a lot of these things have now been made clear. So let's take an interesting passage that, that does get cited in the New Testament. I'm not focusing on New Testament passages, but, um, uh, but I'm I want open to focus on, on, on the... I have no objection to it. You go for it. Sure. Okay. So, so Psalm 2 uh, is a major passage. Um, that has New Testament implications. But Psalm 2, 2 says that the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Okay. Um, so just quick yes or no uh, question here. Um, do you think that the reference to his anointed is a reference that is understood eventually as Jesus? From from the New Testament perspective, I would think so in this proper context. If you keep reading, this is referenced in the New Testament. Um, so okay. the answer in a short so, way would be yes. In a short okay. answer, yeah. so so Yahweh there, you would say would be the Father, correct? I would believe so. Okay, okay, um, and so Yahweh there, referring to the Father, could not also mean the Son because they're distinguished in this particular passage. Yeah, I don't, I'm not oneness. 
Okay. All right. Um, what we got? 30 seconds left. Um, you know, that's, that's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll pass and I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you start up because my, my other questions would take a little bit more time, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you have your time now. First off, I want to say, Dustin, I'm enjoying talking with you and maybe we'll have to have a, a cup of coffee over the internet one day. Um, yes, we'll talk more. So let's, let's build off of what we've been talking about here. Let me just look at my notes here that I've taken my scribblies here. I always can type. I can always write better when I use a typewriter or my computer. When I write my own hand stuff, it's horrible. So um, let's just focus on let's just focus on a couple of things that I shared with you. You have your Bible with you. Uh, open it up. I'm old school. I could cheat and look online. I'm not doing that. Um, look at some of these references. Say numbers. Just numbers, for example. Let's just go. Just start off slow, and we'll build it up. Numbers 31. I referenced to you a moment ago. Numbers 31. And if I remember correctly, I think there was like four or five references here for the Hebrew word echad. Verse 28, let me just read it. I normally use New American Standard. I don't know what translation you prefer, but I'm reading from the New American Standard. And a levy, a levy of attacks for the Lord from whom men of war went out to battle one in 500 of the persons and the cattle and of the donkeys of the sheep. That word persons there is the same um, word there that's used for uh, sorry not echad but for persons for adam now adam can be both singular and plural as i was referencing earlier for um genesis 5 1 and 2. so if the word adam singular but also can reference many people at one time is it of your perspective that uh, that can only be for mankind or can god also be i guess i'm trying to point that direction couldn't God be more than one if, if Scripture teaches that? Uh, I think it's apples and oranges, um, but it, it's clear that that Adam in the opening chapters of Genesis uh, is, a, is a name as a reference to like human beings, okay? Uh, obviously, Adam in Hebrew uh, refers to, to mankind, to humanity, but if you're going to refer to multiple persons— um, you would use the, the, the plural noun there, but uh, certainly uh, Adam as, as one particular person um, is not the same as multiple people, but it's pretty clear that Adam is a representative human being for lots of people. But I don't think yeah. it's the same thing. So you said that uh, where I'm coming from where the word Adam can be used in a plural sense in a singular sense at the same time. I'm just basically getting that basic thing down. I, I think I think Adam can function as a collective noun, if that's the, the terminology I would like to use. I think we understand what collective yeah. nouns are, but it doesn't yeah. mean that it's both that singular that and plural at the same yeah. time. That that would be nonsensical. That was my whole point. Okay, I, we're on the same page. I meant to start off with this, and I went the wrong way, so I'm going to go in reverse now and just go back to the future. Uh, Ekad. So a few, few references you'd be familiar with, Genesis 1-5, morning and night. One day, Genesis 2.24, the man and the woman become one flesh. It's that same word, echad, that is used, but it can be used as a unity. I also mentioned to Genesis 11.6, talks about one people as a whole. Uh, Genesis 34.16, talked again about one people as a whole. Nehemiah 7.66, talks about a congregation being together. Ezra 2.64, a whole assembly. Uh, Ezekiel 37, 17, talking about two sticks being one. So my question to you is, because you said earlier that this Echad was a cardinal rule, number one, as if like it only meant number one as a number. That's, that's, that's not actually what I said. But... What's that? 
That's actually not what I said. Okay, well, let me just finish. I I'll said finish I said that Echad is a cardinal number. Yeah, cardinal number. Well, then it means just number, though, right? It doesn't mean a unity, right? I think all the references that you pointed out, um, you know, uh, morning and evening, one day, it's still one day. It's not two days or three days. It's still one day. Yeah. You know, but one nation, one people. It's still... Yes or no? No, I don't think so. Because it, it means one, not so more than one. you have one day it's, it's without still... a morning? You can, but it's one day, not more than one day. It, it's, can you it's, have it's one a collective day without noun. A morning? You can't. You can have. You can't have one day without an evening. God created one day, two parts, morning and night. That's the way it works. Right, but it's, but it's still one day. So you can't. It's so not it two days or three days. Is. Yeah. No, All right. So I, going on. All right. Well, you know, we can disagree, but it is a point that I was trying to make. Uh, look at with me, if you don't mind. Look at Ezekiel thirty-seven seventeen, and we can make our LDS friends unhappy. In Ezekiel thirty-seven seventeen. This is again the same word being used. If I can get there quickly here. Ezekiel 37. Let me just read a couple of verses here. 37.17 in Ezekiel. Then join them for yourself one to another in one stick that they may become one in your hand. And the sons of your people speak saying, we declare to us what is meant by these. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take a stick of Joseph, Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, the tribes of Israel, his companions. I will put them in it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, and they will become one in my hand. And those references in the word one, it's talking about a unity of two people coming together. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, we need to look at each individual reference um so like in in verse 17 and you said you said new american standard that's what i'm reading from but in each of those cases the word yeah. one is the hebrew word ekkad i'll i'll give you the, the I'll, I'll give you the cheating uh, version. Not, not the last reference in verse 17. but when you go down to verse 19 they will become one so they are becoming one these two people these two nations are coming together and they're becoming one. That's the whole point of Joseph and Ephraim. They're two sticks, and they're coming together. So can you at least acknowledge with me how two can be one, not cardinally, but as a unity? I think that one can function as a collective noun, but one, the cardinal number, means one. It doesn't yeah, mean one as a whole. One group, one congregation, one church. Yet still within that, there can still be a unity, yes or no? I, I'm not sure what you mean by unity. I, I think maybe with some more specific uh, language, it would help me to kind of understand well, what that means. Because a, a, a unity is... Assuming is a, you know that I'm a Trinitarian, and a Trinitarian believes Old and New Testament teaches what's called the tri-unity of God. And so, as I mentioned before, Jews for Jesus or many other sites that are even Jewish people who look at the Hebrew word akkad, they will see both how that word can be used in the singular and also as a compound unity. All these references that I'm showing you are pointing to a unity. That's all that I'm trying to demonstrate right now, that if these references can demonstrate that, then at least our brains can say, okay, if God has been revealed in the Old Testament as not just being singular personage 
which still I haven't found yet, let me ask that question to you. Here's the hard question. Can you point to me one reference, just one, where any scripture, Old Testament, exclusively says God is one personage? Yes, and it's it's Deuteronomy 6.4 in the Greek version where I mentioned, and since, since the Greek version is still technically the Old Testament that falls under our purview here, uh, to where uh, the Greek cardinal number is is used, which refers to one that is grammatically masculine, meaning one person. The Lord is one. So that's how say one the, person? The Greek, well, the cardinal number one that's masculine refers to one person. So in Deuteronomy 6.4, you're saying, I just want to get there here, 6.4, you're saying that it says that God is one person? Yes, the cardinal number is is masculine, so it refers to one person. All right, so just to give a heads up, I'm, I'm showing you. I have the Greek Septuagint right in front of my face right here. And this is what it says, unless uh, you got a different version. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. It doesn't say one person. There's no person there. Is that a question you're asking me? Well, I'm just following up with what you said. So do you have well, a different I know reference? that's that's it. That's just that's well, I, I'm I, I don't think that's the, the correct translation there. If if uh so if you, it's the Lord is so one you think you think that Brenton, who is a recognized scholar who translates this, um, is not translating that accurately? I, well, I'm fully capable of, of translating the Greek, but I'm also well aware okay, so, of... So uh, which Greek the, word is the word for person there? Wh which word is it that I'm missing? Ace. Yeah, so how come they didn't put that in here in any English translations that I read online? Because I don't think you have an English translation out. of the Septuagint. Yeah, I'm just saying I've read the Greek Septuagint online. Right. I mean, you would think that would be important for that to be somewhere, don't you think? All right, that's time right there. All right, you have just heard the first cross-examination within our debate. I, of course, asked questions first, and Mr. Kelly got to ask questions after that. So I want to give my thoughts on the questions that I asked and, of course, my reactions to the answers that I received. So within 10 minutes, I was able to get off, let's see, about 15 questions, which is pretty good. 15 questions within a 10-minute section I think is pretty good. And I was able to get a lot of very interesting answers regarding his position. So the first question that I asked was, does the cardinal number three define God in any passage in the Old Testament? Now he responded by saying no. But then he tried to say that the number one could mean more than one. But he openly admitted that God is never revealed as three within the Old Testament. Of course, the debate is surrounding the topic of whether the God in the Old Testament is taught as Unitarian, as one person. Well, as a Trinitarian, he has to admit that God is never defined as three. But he will say God is defined as one, but he wants to say that one doesn't mean one. One means more than one, which is nonsensical. Second question I asked 
was, does the Old Testament reveal any passage that God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So I already asked if God is revealed as three, and now I want to see if God is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His answer again was no. But then he qualified his answer by saying that this understanding of God is actually a New Testament revelation. Now remember, in our debate, it's topic is dealing with whether the Old Testament teaches that God is Unitarian. And he has admitted now that God is not three, and God is never defined as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants to try to make that argument in the New Testament, but the New Testament evidence is irrelevant for this debate. My third question was, I asked him if he was aware that God is defined with over 20,000 singular references in the Old Testament prior to the point when I had presented that data in my opening statement. I just kind of wanted to see if he has come across this data before in his own research. He responded by said that he knew it was a big number. He thought it was over 10,000, but he didn't know that it was as large as I indicated. So this is very interesting. Prior to me giving my opening statement, he was already under the assumption that the God of the Old Testament is described with at least 10,000 singular references. Now, what he actually does with that data is, I think, very interesting. So as a follow-up question, this is my fourth question to him, I asked him, why is it that he doesn't find over 20,000 pieces of evidence compelling? Because I'm sitting here thinking, like, how many pieces of evidence do you need in order to be convinced of something? There's over 20,000 of them. 20,000 passages or references or instances to where God is described as a single person. Why is that not compelling for you? Now, he responded by saying that there is this thing called context. And when we look at scriptures, we should not isolate them. Now, I'm wondering what he's trying to say with this. Is he suggesting that I am isolating 20,000 instances and taking them out of their context? He's already acknowledged that there are at least 10,000 of them, but he's not quite telling me what he wants to do with it. I'm wondering why he's not compelled by this evidence. Now, I will admit to you that as me as a debater, I don't think that I'm going to convince my debate partner within a debate. A lot of the questions that I'm asking are really for the audience to see the weakness of my debate partner's position. He acknowledges there are over 10,000 places that God has described as a single person. I tell him there's at least twice as many, and I ask him why he doesn't find that much evidence compelling. So for my fifth question, I went a bit off script, and I asked him if he thought that I was taking 20,000 instances of God being defined as a single person out of context. So by saying that he doesn't isolate the evidence, I wondered if he thought that I, by implication, was taking 20,000 pieces of evidence where God is described as a single person out of context. He actually turned around and asked me a question when he was responding, asking me how many times does something need to be stated in order for it to be true. Now, He's not allowed to ask questions to me during my question period. 
and the moderator didn't step in at this particular violation, but I thought it was very inappropriate for my debate partner to be asking me questions during my question period. That's taking up my time. But in the end, he didn't answer my question. He didn't answer the question regarding whether he thought I was taking 20,000 passages out of context. I think by not answering the question, he's actually ignoring the question. He's ignoring the weight of the argument. Other than the fact that there is a God, I can't think of any other fact in the Old Testament that is more frequently attested than God being described as only one person. So sometimes I think a lack of response or a sidestepping of a question is indicative of the weakness of someone's position. Question number six. Since Mr. Powers has suggested that God is described as both one and as a unity, I wanted to ask if he thought there were any passages that described God as one person. I wanted to see what he would actually admit here. So I asked him that question. He said that he was not aware of a passage that described God as one person, even though he previously said that he is aware that God is described as a single person in at least 10,000 places. So now we're having inconsistent testimony. Now we're seeing him admit something, and then when I call him on it, he backtracks and says that he's not aware of any evidence. Now at this point, I'm really starting to get the feeling that he is not sincerely looking at the evidence of the Old Testament. He only wants to defend his position, even if he has to contradict himself in the process. I'm hoping that the audience is picking up on these particular cues. Question number seven. I then go on to point out that Mr. Powers himself has read passages in the course of the debate that describe God with singular pronouns. And I give him some examples of what a singular pronoun is. I, me, my, myself. And then I ask my question. How many persons does a singular pronoun refer to? He responds. He says that a singular pronoun refers to one person. But then he vacillates and says that there are places to where singular pronouns can refer to a unity. So he admits that a singular pronoun refers to one person, but he wants to say that singular pronouns refer to a unity. Again, he's admitting that there are passages in the Old Testament that do in fact define God as a single person, at least sometimes. And this would mean that his answer to the debate topic, does the Old Testament teach Unitarianism, would be, in some passages, yes. So I wonder if we can just pack up and go home now, since I think he really has conceded my point. Of course, it's not that easy. So I'm going to continue to ask questions. Question number eight. Now, I wanted to push him a bit further, and I was kind of hoping that the audience would see the ridiculous nature of what he was suggesting. I asked him how the singular pronoun I could refer to more than one person. This wasn't on my prepared list of questions to ask, but I wanted to see how he would respond, and I wanted to see if the audience would pick up 
on his response. Now, he said that in that context, of course, I didn't state a specific context, but he responds by saying that in that context, he would agree with me. So he would agree with me that a singular pronoun for God would indicate that God is one person, but then he goes off into the New Testament, which is irrelevant for this debate because the debate is about the Old Testament. Now, I wasn't very flattered with the fact that he was going to continue to waste my time with an ongoing discussion about the New Testament that has no relevance for a debate on the Old Testament. But I didn't want to come across as forceful or harsh. And I was kind of sitting back and waiting to see if the moderator might step in and perhaps redirect Mr. Powers back on topic. Eventually, I kindly requested that we please keep the topic to the Old Testament since this was a debate about the Old Testament. This, of course, would have the effect of reminding the audience that Mr. Powers is going off track with this argument and not focusing on the topic in and of itself. He did come back and respond with a reference that the Holy Spirit is involved with creation, and he cited a passage from Job. Now, this doesn't prove that God is more than one person, since the Spirit of God is God himself extending his presence and power. Question number nine. I felt that he has dug himself into a hole on God being one, but he doesn't want to accept the theology that God is one person. So I thought to go at it from a different direction, asking a simple yes or no question that would further demonstrate the weaknesses of his argument. I asked if the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son was taught in the Old Testament. He said, no, this doctrine is revealed in the New Testament. Question 10. I wanted to pin him down on how certain words for God are defined in his mind, and I started with Yahweh. Is Yahweh a reference to the triune God, or is Yahweh a reference to the Father alone? Now, his response to this, I think, is very interesting. He responded by saying that Yahweh is actually a title and... He thought that this title could refer to either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Now, I wasn't expecting this answer because it actually sounds like modalism, which I know he doesn't believe, but that seems to be the implication of what he's saying. But it appears that he wants the word Yahweh to not refer to a personal name for God, but rather as a title that can refer to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, and he can interpret it any way in any passage that he likes. So in my 11th question, I went a little bit off script, but I wanted to really push back on this Yahweh as a title suggestion, which is clearly wrong. Yahweh is not a title. Yahweh is the personal name for God. So after saying that Yahweh is a personal name, not a title, I really wanted him to clarify his response that Yahweh is a designation that could change. I wanted to see if he would admit that Yahweh is a personal name. 
perhaps for a single person? And he says, yes, yes. Question number 12. I then called him on the carpet over his definition. Why is it that none of the Hebrew lexicons say what he just said about Yahweh in the Old Testament? I went on to list those lexicons, the Brown Driver and Briggs, the Halot lexicon, and the Klein's Dictionary of Classical Hebrew. What gives him the right to define these words contrary to standard lexicons? He wants to suggest that Yahweh is a reference that could refer to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. And yet, that's not what these lexicons say. And his response is very telling. He said that if he was to accept what I was saying, then he would have to reject the New Testament. And this is very telling. It tells me that Mr. Powers clearly sees the New Testament as saying something that contradicts the Old Testament on a plain reading, specifically on the nature of God, even though the debate is about the Old Testament, and Yahweh is a Hebrew name. It's not a Greek name found in the New Testament. Question number 13. I turned to look at a passage that spoke about Yahweh and a distinct person from Yahweh, namely Yahweh's anointed king. So in Psalm 2.2, which is from a psalm that has a lot of reciting in the New Testament, a lot of allusions in the New Testament, this passage says that the kings of the earth were enraged and the nations take their stand against Yahweh and against his anointed. So first, in order to identify the one who is distinguished from Yahweh, my question was, is the referent to his anointed eventually understood to refer to Jesus? He said, yes. Question 14, I said, so Yahweh would be the father. He says that he believes so. And then my final question of cross-examination says that is Yahweh a reference in this passage that does not refer to the Son? He says that he agrees, and he says that he is not a oneness person. But it does indicate that in Psalm 2-2, Yahweh is the Father alone. And by referring to the anointed as his anointed, with a singular pronoun, this means that Yahweh is one person, and Yahweh is not the Son. So, I got a lot of very interesting answers from him, and I hope that the audience was able to assess the many weaknesses with his position in this debate based on the answers that he gave to my questions in the first cross-examination period. So thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we listen to the second round of cross-examinations from each participant. And I will, of course, include my reactions to the answers that Kelly gave to my questions. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. 
you may check us out in our description of this episode for a link to PayPal if you would like to donate. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. My name is Dustin Smith, your host, and until next time, please take care.